Liberty lockdown, please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you ride with the thought, you've always got a home The virus you're scared of will come and it'll go The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe Let's get into the show Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. This is Clint here. I've been ranting and raving a lot lately, so I wanted to talk a little bit about why I'm so passionate and why I love freedom so much, because it's easy to get caught up in the day-to-day shit fest that is, you know, DLP or Twitter or whatever, but I don't really ever explain to you why it matters to me, and I wanted to do that tonight because... I was feeling very, um, I don't know, introspective about the perspective I'm giving you or my outlook on the world. And I know it comes off as very dire because that's my honest opinion is that we are in a a state of crisis. However, I'm extraordinarily optimistic about human beings. I'm extraordinarily optimistic about the future. I just think that we're going to have a rough patch in between here and there. So why do I love freedom? Well, first and foremost, the history of humanity is one of starvation, poverty, brutishness, uh, you know, just a general fight for survival, which we no longer have for the most part. And I think that where we're at as a modern society is very near the apex of humanity in terms of peace and prosperity. However, I think that it's it's perilous, largely given to the state of our government's RAND economy with the Federal Reserve. And if you look at history, we had the 1900s, while there was more innovation than we've ever seen probably combined in the history of humanity, it was also fraught with some of the most atrocious bloody wars, not, the, not some of, the the most, by far. I think it was well over 100 million killed in wars in the 1900s. I mean, 100 million, which is mind-blowing. A lot of that comes from starvation, so I, I don't mean in firefights per se, but just in terms of government abuse of their people and of foes, enemy countries across the globe. Because of the history of humanity, because it has been such a hard fight to get to this place, I can't let it go. I can't, I can't go backwards. And while I realize we may have to do some barbaric things in the short term to, to maintain our freedoms, I think that it's worth doing. It's worth fighting for because the nature of man through history has not been one of peace and prosperity. And sometimes it requires violent defense of your freedoms. You know, it's not that I am interested in anybody dying. I've said that numerous times. I have no interest in that. I don't want to go to war with anybody. Basically, to me, freedom is so paramount to every other thing that you can strive for in this life that it is worth giving your life. I don't want to live without freedom. You know, you can be a a well-fed slave or you can be a, uh, a starving free man, and I would choose starvation every time. And that's, that's my perspective. I, I know a lot of people 
would say that, but they don't really mean it. I really mean it. I really do. I, I would not trade for slavery, no matter what. And I feel like a lot of people are doing that today. So I just really want to emphasize that the only way we maintain freedom is a willingness for self-sacrifice. And that's just proven out through history. You know, if you're not willing to fight and die for your freedom, you will not be free. The government's reach and the government's power over you extends as far as you allow it to go. And we have allowed it to go very, very far. The year 2020 took us to places that I never imagined possible in my lifetime, at least not in my younger years. You know, I thought at, at worst we might see this level of tyranny in 20 or 30 years. And by then I'd be too old to do anything about it, but I happen to still be young enough and in good enough shape that I can actually fight this shit. So I'm gonna, I love all of you listening because I know you're like me, you know, you're the type of people that, that value this stuff over temporary comforts. You're willing to, to sacrifice the present for a brighter tomorrow. And not a lot of people in America are. I think that what makes America so special to me is not what it is today but what it was founded upon. And by that, I don't mean all of the negatives because we all know them, so I'm not going to list them off. The valuing of freedom at the inception of this country was paramount to anything. You know, we came from a violent revolution from, at the time, the greatest army on earth, beating them miraculously. And with that came a passion for entrepreneurialism. We had people coming from all over the globe to be here because they knew that with enough hard work and determination, they would have a chance at successes that they couldn't possibly imagine in their home country. That's real. That's a real thing that happened for a very long time in America, even for minorities, which is basically all immigrants are. They're all minorities. And they would come across, and some of them would die on the way. Some of them would fight and succeed when they got here. Some of them would fight and fail when they got here. But ultimately, this country is founded on dream chasing. It's founded on people that are willing to die for an opportunity at bettering their present life. I think that that is why I love not just America, but the American people so much. Because your stock is that of innovating savages. People willing to do anything to better their life and their children's lives. Not everyone's that great. I know, you know, we, as libertarians, we tend to poo-poo American exceptionalism. But in that regard, America really is special. It is. Because the people that came here did it against all odds. You know, they were sitting at their, in their homeland thinking to themselves, man, this government really sucks. I got to do something about it. There was a lot of other people in those countries thinking the same thing, but they didn't think I got to do something about it. They sure as hell didn't think, I'm going to go across the Atlantic and make a new life for myself in a country I don't speak the language in. No. Those people are still there. And their heirs are still there. And there is something to be said for the genetic lineage of the absolute barbarians that were willing to... I mean, I'm talking months-long sailing expeditions to get here. Those are special people. And then the people that got to the West Coast, once they got off the boat, they're like, hey... I don't want to stay on the East Coast with all these assholes. I'm going to get in a wagon and just for the next three months, I'm going to keep going or six months or a year or however long it would take because of weather or whatever. 
half of their family dying along the way. I mean, these are special people. There's just no two ways about it. They're very special people. They were all dream chasing. Many didn't make it, but those that did, not only were they the most courageous, but they were also brilliant people. Because if they weren't, they wouldn't have made it. Not generation after generation. Through kind of a survival of the fittest type deal, the American people became just grizzled, brilliant, entrepreneurial, hardworking, some of them God-fearing people. And I know that the history of the world doesn't have many countries like that. So that's the main reason that I'm willing to discuss and argue and fight so much over politics on a day-to-day basis is because I really, really value not so much this dirt, but these people. I love Americans. I love all people for that matter, but I really, really do love Americans. And to put it bluntly, that's why I'm not willing to give up. I am not willing to give up on this country or these people because it is special and they are. And that's why for me, all sacrifice is worth doing for that dream again, to maintain that dream because we attained it, but it's fleeting. Freedom is fleeting. Freedom is not the natural state of man. Unfortunately, I think freedom is the natural goal of man but I don't think it's the natural state. Otherwise, it'd be much more common. And the truth is, throughout history, we have numerous examples of people kind of attaining some semblance of freedom through revolution and things like that. And then because the natural state of man is also one of seeking power over others and dominating others, you end up cycling back. And... That's what we're doing right now. We're cycling back. But I believe it's a lot easier to maintain the momentum, to keep with the inertia. Because if you have to start from scratch, which is what you do you know, when you topple a communist dictatorship, you really have to start from scratch. You have to hope that the people that are coming from those ashes are, are like-minded, that they also want freedom. Because at this point, if our government falls, there is enough people in this country that have been indoctrinated with socialist ideology that they are very likely to support a communist-type strongman dictator to bring us out of the next depression. And I don't want that. And I don't think anyone wants that that's listening to the show. So I'm not going to make any apologies for hating that potential future for all of us and fighting tooth and nail every single day to prevent it because if you want a powerful dictator you have many options on this planet you can go there if you want freedom and a small government or no government you have no options that doesn't exist on this planet and it doesn't exist in america either for the record but it has at some point and the people here still are armed enough and entrenched enough in their beliefs of their own exceptionalism and their own freedom that they might, given the right set of ingredients, find that courage again and find that willingness to fight again for it. So that to me is why I do this show, because I am reaching out to those few of you that still have that burning fire in your soul that tells you I will be a slave to no man. 
No man will rule me. I may not be better than all the other people on the planet, but I'm going to act like it and demand that respect. Demand that I am capable and I can stand on my own merit and succeed. Because the truth is there are many brilliant people across this globe, not this country, but across the planet that are intelligent and hardworking enough that they could achieve unimaginable wealth and security and prosperity and health and success for their family if given the opportunity. But given the government that they've allowed to rise up around them, they cannot do that. And that's the state now of many people in America. And they don't realize it, so they think that it's a product of capitalism. Because they've been told that from elementary school. That it's survival of the fittest. And you're just not, you're not cut out for it. The truth is a lot, of, a lot of you out there are cut out to succeed if given the right environment to do so. And the regulatory environment in this country is no longer one conducive to unimaginable success for those coming from very rough upbringings with you know, very uh, detrimental environments that basically make it extraordinarily hard so that only the 1% can actually rise out of the ghetto and, and do what they, they dreamt of. But there's a lot more in those ghettos that are capable of doing amazing things for their family if the government wasn't oppressing them. And those are the people I fight for because they deserve the same opportunity I had. I had a great opportunity because my family was middle class and I was raised to you know, think about hard work and education and I got to model myself off of some very successful people. Not everybody has that. But I believe and I know that there are people that don't have parents that showed them the way. They are self-starters, self-teachers that can self-learn their way into winning the game. And that's really all I've done. I have won the game through a set of circumstances that were out of my control. And then genetics that were also out of my control. And then a willingness to do the hard things and to uh, save and invest and prosper long term. Certainly, I had an advantage in terms of the education I was give on, given on these matters, but ultimately, it came down to my willingness to do it, and I had that willingness for whatever reason. I'm not saying I'm special. I just had it, and there's a lot of people out there that, given that information, could do the same thing, and they're never given it, certainly not in our public schools, certainly not with our, our government-funded schools. They are basically cattle for the most part. They're not given real in-depth economic understanding by any stretch of the imagination. And that is so detrimental to someone who's trying to get a footing in a world that is based off of economics. If you're talking about financial success, that's pretty much what you have to know. You can't luck your way into it. You have to have both skill and then knowledge. And a lot of people have skill out there, but they don't have the knowledge. And that's what I hope to provide with the show, because I am very economically educated and business educated and those are those are my gifts you know that's that's just what i'm good at and i think a lot of you out there are also more than capable of doing what i've done but for whatever reason maybe you're young and you just haven't had the opportunity yet i'm not super old but i certainly have been around long enough to have accumulated some stuff and i think that Given the right set of circumstances and the right education, many people could meet me at the apex, meet me at the summit, you know? 
And that's what I hope to do. That's why I, I've ended so many of my episodes talking about investment ideas and and uh, what I see coming down the road economically. It's not to scare you guys. I have no interest in scaring people. You're already scared. We're all, we're all scared. It's 2020. Jesus Christ. I, I don't need to add to that. So that's not my goal. My goal is to assist. My goal is to help and propel and see you prosper. And my dream is that one day this show gets big enough that I have listeners telling me, hey man, I've been listening to you for three years and I just paid off my house. You know, that would be incredible. Or I just bought an arsenal. <laughs> that would also be incredible. The, those are the things I want to hear from you guys someday down the road. We're very early on and I'm a dreamer. That's why I love this country. I dream big. And I believe that that's where this show can take us along together. You know, we can, we can achieve things together just with this silly information that I have in my brain for whatever reason. That's why I hope that you guys will reach out to me. That's why my DMs are open because I care about everyone's success, especially those that are willing to put in the time and listen to this show. That's very, it's very special. You guys are a very special bunch of people and I don't ever, ever forget it. I really, really appreciate every single one of you listening. And please, if you have any questions for me about finance, at Liberty Logpod on Twitter, I am absolutely always willing to respond and I'll do my best. You know, it may take me a day, but I will do my best to give you the best possible advice. So don't be afraid to reach out because it means the world to me. It's fulfilling. I don't consider it a burden whatsoever. I consider it a blessing. So feel free anytime, honest to God. And a lot of you already have. And I, I bet you probably feel like you were burdening me and you weren't. I loved those communications. I love anyone who's trying to better themselves, economically or, the, or, or otherwise. I think it's, it's a beautiful thing. And when you guys reach out, it fills me with joy and pride and hope for the future. So please continue to do so. I know that a lot of my podcasts in the past have been very dire and they come off very apocalyptic. Just want you to know, we're going to get through this. We will get through this. The fact that you are the type of person who is listening to a show like this right now, thinking to yourself, oh my God, the world is in such dire straits. That means that you are already in the 1%. You already are, for whatever reason, aware of the situation while most are asleep. You're already awake. I don't know why. I don't know why you have that. I don't know why I have it either. But it's very rare and special and you should feel special about it because you will be capable of getting through whatever comes because humanity is resilient. And that's just the truth. If you make it through, you're resilient because otherwise you wouldn't have. And I don't think we're all that lucky. I think we're going to do it on our merit. So I wanted to give a brief background on what I did to get to where I got. And hopefully it's interesting. I don't know. Um, so I started off being extraordinarily entrepreneurial from a young age and very money-driven, very investment-oriented, very um, save, don't spend, very frugal. And in middle school, I started to sell Fun Dip to uh, my classmates. And by like a month into my little makeshift business, I was just going to Costco and buying Fun Dip <laughs> with my dad. And he was like, man, you're really going through that Fun Dip. I'm like, yeah, well, you should see the markup I'm getting on it. He's like, what? <laughs> I was getting like, I think it was 7X. So I think they were 11 cents 
when I was buying them and I was selling them for a dollar and the kids were happy. I was happy. I was like, oh my God, capitalism rocks. And I was making a hundred bucks a week in seventh grade. I got suspended from school for it, but I wasn't dissuaded. And uh, <laughs> I think in high school, I started to do the same thing when the internet had the capacity for pirating music. So I started to steal and uh, sell burnt CDs of albums that I liked and that kids liked. And I was selling them for like five or 10 bucks and people were happy that it was cheaper than where they could get it in the store. And I was happy because I was getting them, you know, burnable CDs were like 50 cents or whatever. Agorism, baby. I don't even remember how much money I was making. Uh, it wasn't a ton, but again, it was just kind of like, I was always finding a way and simultaneously I was taking all of my birthday gifts and saving them and putting them in my, uh, my savings account. My dad started to tell me about what he did professionally, which was trustee investing and just a brief explanation on what that is. Uh, basically it's what a bank does, but it's on a private level. So we would lend money to people who needed it short term to purchase a home or purchase a investment property. And even when I had five grand or 10 grand, you know, my dad was like, Hey, I'll take that from you. I'll invest it and I'll give you 10% on your money. So by the time I saw that, I was like, Oh my God, this is the way. Like I started to get a hundred bucks a month for my little investment. And I was like, this is incredible. I cannot believe I'm getting this much money for doing nothing. You know, just having delayed gratification for having not spent when I could have, when not getting the latest toy or whatever. And I wasn't spoiled by any stretch. My, my family was very frugal. They didn't buy me the things I wanted. They were always trying to talk me out of the latest. Uh, I remember the, uh, the Reebok pumps in elementary school were like the shit. And I really wanted them. And my mom was like, they're a hundred bucks. We're not getting them. And I was heartbroken, but it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about saving and investing and, and realizing that you don't need the latest and greatest gadget. You can, you can delay gratification and, and benefit. And that's what I did. So I started to take all these little, little gifts, you know, I'd get 50 bucks or whatever for my birthday, save it, invest it, save it, invest it. And by the time I was in college, I had enough passive income that I was already ahead of my friends. And they were like, Clint, you're, you know, going to college and you still, you seem to have more money than me. Oh, by the way, I sold a little bit of weed in, in college, um, made like a G a month, but I quit after a few months cause it got a little bit too sketchy. This is all sarcastic or, you know, this is parody. I'm kidding about that part. That didn't happen to EA agents that are undoubtedly listening. But um, so, yeah, those were kind of my first entrepreneurial exploits. And then I went to college and uh, unfortunately I had a, a brief setback where one of my best friends died in a motorcycle accident and I was there and it was heartbreaking and I was kind of spiraled into a, I don't know, kind of a quasi alcoholic depression and very hard period of my life. Um, just took me a while to, to recoup. I'd say probably five or six years. And I still kind of suffer with a little bit of a PTSD over it, but nothing compared to our soldiers out there. Um, but it was hard. It was very hard. And at that point I kind of dusted myself off. Oh, in the interim, I also worked for Verizon wireless and became one of the top 10 national sales reps, even though I didn't have a college degree and I was making a hundred grand a year. I only lasted a year because it was, I was burning at both ends of the, uh, the candle and it was very hard charging and stressful and the quotas kept getting harder. And even though I was killing it, it was just, it was just kind of draining my soul working for the man. And even though I was getting compensated very well for someone that age, I think I was like 23 or something. It was, it wasn't exactly what I wanted. Uh, it definitely taught me that I had what it took to succeed, but it didn't 
fulfill me in the way that I had hoped. And I didn't really know why at the time, but I found out later. So I'll get to that. So I went back to college at, I think, 25 and finished two years later. Um, I had dropped out of college after my friend died, San Diego State, and fought my way back. And I think I got my AA from like Miramar or something and uh, ended up going to Cal State San Marcos for my upper division business classes. And I really found my stride there. And I was, (laughs) this is crazy. So I I bought a mobile home. (laughs) So when they say you can't come from the trailer park to the top, they're lying to you because I did it. Um, my first home was a mobile home. I was 26 years old and it was, the market was at its peak. So I wasn't about to go buy a house and I didn't have enough money to do that anyways, because prices were crazy. I'm in San Diego, by the way. So it's pretty expensive here. And I bought a mobile home. I bought a lot in a mobile home park and I tore out the old piece of crap one and I put in a new one. It ended up costing me like 130 grand. And at the time they were selling for 200. So again, I was being frugal about it. And I probably should have sold it right away and made that 70,000 profit, but I didn't. And the market tanked and so did the market for even mobile homes. And it was, you know, it was a good experience because it taught me a lot about, you know, willingness to live beneath your means and to, I just, I got to know a lot of people I wouldn't have got to know in that park. You know, I got to see the, the strife that the working class go through. And I, I was young enough that I thought to myself, okay, well, they're good enough people, but I, I don't want that for my future and I don't want that for my kids. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to excel beyond this point. And owning a mobile home at 26 was still an advance. I mean, most people at my age didn't own that even. So uh, the market tanked. I ended up selling it for like a $15,000 loss. But simultaneously, I had graduated college. By the way, I got straight A's all through my upper division business and I really enjoyed the hell out of it. I had some CEOs that some retired CEOs that were my college professors taught me a ton. Um, so college wasn't totally worthless as it is for many people. So that was a good experience. So I graduated and I started working for my dad's mortgage brokerage. And that was tough, very tough working for family. It is always a struggle, especially between a father and son. But I learned a lot and I uh, had some opportunities that arose pretty early on. And because I had saved and had a little nest egg, I was able to take advantage of them. So my dad having the trustee portfolio during the uh, 09 collapse, there was a bunch of foreclosures that I was in charge of liquidating. I actually liquidated over 100 foreclosures in about a two-year period. It was exhausting and crazy, but I was able to kind of cherry pick and see some that I thought had prospects. So I got this one house, was a 4,000 square foot house on a couple acres of land in Escondido, which is a nice enough area of uh, San Diego and I purchased it for myself and uh, it needed a ton of work. So I had to dump a, like a hundred grand into renovations and fixed it up. But by the time I was done, I ended up making a, a very sweet profit on it. And I parlayed that into buying a house in Carlsbad. So th- that's kind of my path. Um, I also bought some additional foreclosures uh, from my dad's company and I bought some other properties that weren't through my dad at all. While I've succeeded a lot with my business, I also, I'd say at least half my net worth came from investment properties that I not necessarily flipped, but held long-term and then sold for a profit as the market appreciated, as I, uh, you know, improved the tenants that were in there. I just kept kind of taking these steps, these stepping stones. And by the time I got my house in Carlsbad, I was living on a lagoon overlooking water, the ocean in the backdrop. It was incredible. I felt like I had 
achieved all my wildest dreams and I was only, you know, early 30s. It was really a, a remarkable feeling. What I learned is even though it's satisfying and it certainly is, I still thank my blessings every single day that I'm where I'm at. If you're like me, you're going to continue to be driven and you're going to want to give back. You're going to want to help family. You're going to want to find even more ways of being free. And for me, that's what this show is. It's a, it is the ultimate in freedom. If I can turn this into a successful show and find a way that I can be anywhere on this planet and still have an income, wow, you've really made it at that point. So that's kind of my path. That's my journey. That's how I did it. Oh, by the way, uh, seven years ago, me and my dad had a falling out. He was on the last episode. Um, it was financial stuff uh, with the business and a partnership that we were hoping to make happen. Didn't work out. I quit, went on a cruise ship. Three months later, he emailed me and said, uh, hey, you know, I don't know why we went down that path, but you're more than capable of doing what I've been doing. You should probably start your own company. And I said, you know what? I already, I already had thought about that. I'm going to do it. So I did, started my own mortgage company. And because I had such good relationships with many of his investors, as he retired, I was able to kind of absorb a lot of them and uh, discard the ones that were the most headachey during the 09 collapse. And I was able to make, uh, in my first year of business, I made more than my dad made in his last. And that was remarkable because I did it with no employees where he is, he had five. So it was incredible. Just so gratifying that I not only could I do it, but that I was right. You know, that I was right that I was capable because until you do it, you don't know, you know, you think it, but you don't know, you just don't know. Um, so I proved that to myself and then the lockdown happened and I started this show and that's kind of our journey to now. So I hope that was interesting. I hope that kind of demonstrates the work that I put in and, and what kind of prosperity it can achieve. And that's what I know that it's not, I'm not super special when it comes to these saving and investing ideas. You know, anyone can do it truly. And it just takes the type of person who's willing to delay gratification and realize that a slightly rougher today makes a 10 time easier tomorrow. And that's what I'm living now. I'm living an incredibly easier tomorrow. I Airbnb the downstairs of my house, so I don't even pay a mortgage. You know, it's covered by my Airbnb tenants. It's an, it's incredible. It's an incredible lifestyle. I'm blessed beyond words. However, the state of California is making it untenable for me to continue to live here, so I'm not going to, because ultimately I cannot justify uh, working as hard as I do to have the government take 60% of my money plus a half a percent of my net worth. I mean, it's insane. So I've already bitched about that enough. I won't go down that trail again. I don't want to leave out the part that I talked about with Verizon and, and why I wasn't fulfilled because what I learned about myself over these years, and I hope I save you some time, is that if you are like me, you will probably be bothered by working for someone else and allowing them to profit off of you. Because if you're smart enough to realize that the wealth that you're producing is largely being taken by your employer and you're getting you know, a market rate, which is fair. There's nothing immoral or wrong about it. So don't get me wrong. But if you want to really get ahead, you need to take that risk and you need to achieve on your own. You have to, because you will never get paid what you're truly worth as long as you work for someone else. Because if you were, they wouldn't be employing you because you wouldn't be profitable. It's very simple. So if you have the courage and the will and the drive necessary and the skill, some skill set, whatever it is. If you have those ingredients, I challenge you 
to go out and pursue it now because the market is absolutely teetering and you will have an opportunity in those ashes to build something beyond your wildest dreams. And I hope that everyone listening that has any idea that they've been you know, mulling over for years, but they're like, ah, oh, I got these bills I got to pay. Well, when the shit hits the fan and the market tanks, you're probably going to be starting from scratch. So would you rather do that in the middle of a depression or would you rather have started that now? I hope the answer is now. Because in my experience, if you have at least got that ball rolling, even if it's a side hustle, start it now. Have that backup plan. Have that plan A be your plan B until it can be your plan A. So I hope you guys are are inspired a little bit by what I accomplished and can take some of these lessons and go out and do it for yourself. And if you do, please tell me about it. That'll be so gratifying. So what I'm doing right now is I'm, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I'm building five houses um, down in South San Diego. Uh, actually, six now. I bought a, an additional parcel, long story. But I'm going to be building six houses. I'm going to liquidate those as soon as they're done. I've been doing it for two years now. So we are grading and it will be up and done right after the election. Woohoo. Great timing, Clint. Um, but as of now, for whatever reason, starter homes are still flying off the shelves. So I hope that I'm lucky and I can get out. And if I do, as we discussed last week, I will likely be moving to Puerto Rico to continue to grow that net worth uh, tax-free or extremely low tax. And that's an important thing to talk about. So let me talk about it real quick. The main driving force behind my success has not been the returns on my invest on my investment, but rather the compounding nature of them. Because I have invested and had a, you know, even back in the 90s, actually, it was a 12% return on trust deeds. Now it's down to nine or 10, but that's thanks to the Fed. Thanks, Fed. Um, so yeah, the imagine you have ten grand. You're only getting a hundred bucks a month at twelve percent return. That's easy math. Twelve percent annually divided by twelve, you get one percent. One percent of ten thousand is a hundred bucks. So as a kid, I was getting a hundred dollars a month, which was awesome because no kid gets that kind of money. I didn't get an allowance or anything like that, but I was doing better than anybody because I had that compounding interest that was coming in, and because I wasn't spending it. Every year, I would have another 1200 from that investment that I would throw in again. So then that 10000 becomes 11200 Then I have 11200 that's earning 12% interest. So I'd have to get a calculator to get the exact math on that, but you get the idea. Or actually, no, I don't. It would be $112. So it just keeps increasing. So the 112 then accumulates a little bit faster than when I was only making 100 a month. You do that, then you all of a sudden you get up to 100000 Boom, you add another zero to that. Instead of getting 100 bucks a month, you're getting 1000 Now you get up to a million. Boom. You add another zero to that. Now you're getting uh, you know, 10000 a month. This is crazy stuff. It's uh, extraordinarily powerful. So I encourage you all to start that process now. Because if you can get a compounding rate of return on your money, which is not easy to do, you have to be very cautious. But if you can do it, even at a low level, say it's 7%, if you can compound that over a decade, the amount of money that you get is very meaningful. So there's something called the rule of 72. You can always divide 72 by the interest rate, and that tells you your doubling time. So uh, with 12%, it doubles very fast. It's like six years. If lower rate, takes a little bit longer. But if you're doubling your money every decade or every even 12 years, 
you're kicking the shit out of the market. You're doing really, really well. So that's what I would encourage you to start now because if you do, by the time you're you know, old and gray, you will have accumulated more wealth than you can imagine. And I want that for everybody because it is within your grasp. It literally doesn't take that much. It takes delayed gratification, investing, and patience. And due diligence and a whole bunch of other things. You know, <laughs> I don't want to oversimplify it. it it's, not, it's not super simple, but it's doable. So do it, please. And if you need advice, DM me and I will give you advice. That's an amazing resource to have because I'm a very successful guy. And I have done this. I know exactly what it takes. And you have that resource for free. Don't pass up on this offer. <laughs> Use me to excel in your life. And I promise you, you will not regret it. And I think now I have to get into why I give the LP such a hard time. Because all of these things I've just talked about, about my history and my track record and everything, it's just about financial freedom. But again, that word freedom comes into this. Freedom is so important to me in every aspect of my life. And because I have financial freedom, it gives me time freedom. And time is everything. It's the one asset you cannot replenish. You cannot replace it. And... I have that now. In my 30s, I have immense amounts of free time that allows me to do shows like this because I have passive income that enables me to do so. So the LP, how do I put this? Basically, they are working against me. And that's why I get so offended because I have the best interest of the libertarian movement at heart. And perhaps they do too. I don't know their heart, so I can't say. But I can tell you this. What they are doing is counterproductive. Tonight, we all went on a rampage as usual because they said, uh, ha ha ha, you know, Rand Paul probably gets scared on some tweet. They deleted it an hour later after Justin Amash came out and apologized for it. But they were basically making fun of the fact that Rand looked concerned when he was being mobbed by those people in D.C. after leaving uh, Trump's speech after the RNC. And however you feel about Rand is fine. I, I don't care if you love him or you hate him. Whatever you want to feel about him, I, don't, I really don't care. But let me say this. If you look at Rand Paul's track record, it is by far the best of any sitting senator and arguably better than any senator in the history of the United States. So I don't understand how the party of libertarianism and freedom and small government and low taxation could possibly look at him as anything other than an ally. And then you add into that the fact that he is the son of Ron Paul, the godfather of libertarianism, the guy who spread our message better and more further reaching than any other libertarian ever in history. And it seems as if, to me and to many, that the LP hates Rand and they hate Ron because of some fucking newsletters in the 80s that he didn't even write. And for the life of me, I can't understand how you could allow some conspiracy theorist, quasi-racist newsletters from the 80s when they were being mailed to people. And you can use that to dismiss everything else he did for our cause. Ron Paul is responsible for converting more people than anyone ever. How could you not appreciate that? Are you the party of libertarianism or aren't you? Ron Rand is a libertarian for president. I don't know how that alone doesn't make him kind of sacrosanct. But 
you still will defend Gary Johnson and Bill Weld, a fucking neocon? But Ron Paul's newsletters disqualify him from glory and uh, reverence? It doesn't make any sense to me at all. And now it's been transferred onto his son, who is clearly the best senator we have. I mean, you could argue Amash. I don't think it's close, personally. And then, you know, you have guys like Thomas Massey. He's a Republican. Do we just hate him because of the labels? Are we are we that stupid? Are we are we everything that we ra- rail against in terms of partisanship? Are we really going to look at people that are labeled as Republicans but talk and walk and quack exactly like Ron Paul and say to the, say to ourselves, "Uh, he's not one of us." I'm sorry. Thomas Massey is more libertarian than Sarwak or any of these sons of bitches that are in the LP right now. Thomas Massey is a godsend for America. Granted, he's going to get nothing accomplished just like Ron did, but that's okay. You know why? We're about messaging at this point. We're not about winning elections because we don't have a chance at doing that yet. You have to convert millions of people. Who has done that better than Ron Paul? The answer is nobody. So how about you lay off his kid, huh? How about you at least not mock him fearing for his life while he walks with his wife? Is that not... Something that perhaps the party of the non-aggression principle might value? It's just bizarre to me. While we signal to Black Lives Matter, we simultaneously bash the one senator that's actually doing a good job? That makes no sense. Oh, he runs cover for Trump. Who gives a shit? He's a political creature. Yes, he's going to say some things you don't like. But at the end of the day, what does he do? He passes laws or at least attempts to pass laws like... Uh, you know, ending no-knock raids for Brianna. Come on. He's doing more for Black Lives Matter than you. And you mock him while signaling to Black Lives Matter. What sense does that make? And that's why I started this show off by telling you how much I value freedom and how much I value liberty and how much I love the philosophy of libertarianism. Because I want you to understand my wrath towards the LP. It is not that... I hate Sarwak personally. I don't know the guy. But what he has done has been deeply detrimental to the libertarian movement when we have the most blue water in front of us we have ever had in the history of our party. Come on. There is so much opportunity. People are clamoring, begging for a viable third-party candidate. And we presented Joe Jorgensen, who, honestly, not that bad. She is not that bad when you hear her speak. But when you look at her social media, it's like a leftist fever dream. Just ranting bullshit sometimes. Other times it's very clear and concise. And then every second day, she comes out with some shit that's obviously against our principles. And it makes you wonder, first off, clearly she's not running it. But it makes you wonder, is the person that's running it trying to undermine the movement? Because if you are just some crazy left-leaning libertarian, I'm sorry, but that's not what this party is. It isn't. All you have to do is look at Dave Smith's success. The biggest movement within libertarianism is a right-leaning movement. And by right-leaning, I do not mean racist at all. Libertarians, on the whole, are not racist. We believe in the individual. It is incompatible with liberty to put someone into a category because of their skin color. It's absurd. 
That's why it's so offensive that we are constantly put on our heels because we're right-leaning libertarians and we just don't fall into the identity politics trap. You think that that means we don't care about minorities. We absolutely do, but we believe that they are no different than us. We believe that the solution to what ails them is no different from what helps us. Ending police brutality is a vital moment in this country, and it has nothing to do with race. And I know that because I don't care if it's a white person or a black person who's killed by the cop if they're innocent. It is immoral and evil regardless. So I don't need to come up with special laws for people of color because the law should be equal regardless of color. That is what the civil rights movement was all about. If I'm a regressive because I believe in the civil rights movement of the 60s, not the one that was actually put into law, but the movement itself, where we attempted to make ourselves more equal, especially under the law, that is the goal. That is, that is progressive by definition. It is progress because we're trying to get the cops to stop killing us. Give me that progress. Accept that perhaps I am an ally, regardless of the fact that I'm unwilling to play the hashtag game of Black Lives Matter. I'm not going to say the magic words. I'm going to talk about how to solve what they're asking for. That is all I ask of the LP. Just tell them what solutions we have and tell them that we had them before they were a hashtag. We knew what you needed before you knew what you needed. That is a message that wins because the drug war has been something that we railed against far before anyone else. Far before. How can you not turn that into an automatic win for the movement? How can you not convince them that, hey, obviously these people who are new to the game, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, obvious drug warriors, we have been against that movement from jump. From the 80s, from the 70s, we've been against it. When all of their fathers were being put in prison, we were trying to prevent it. How can you not demonstrate to them, look, you are being pandered to, not by the LP, but by the DNC. That is where the pandering comes from. Do you trust the people that put you in prison to free you from them? Or do you trust the people that tried to prevent you from being put there in the first place? That is the question. Put that to them. See if they can see through the charade that is modern duopoly politics. See if they want a viable third option. Not one that signals to them with words that they're using, but signals to them with principle and evidence that we mean what we say and we've meant it for a very long time. Show them our passion, show them our heart, show them our will to do what needs to be done, and then fucking do it.